Here's the bottom line. Don't get good at doing something you hate because you just get more of it. So if you're not a food list kind of guy and if you're not like a foodie and you don't want to put on 400 pounds, you might want to stay away from that. You got to do things that you're passionate about because people, even though you might not know it, can sense your passion. I think one of the things that people really connect with me or don't connect with me is how passionate I am about the things that I say and talk about. I believe what I believe 100%. If I don't, I'm not talking about it. Today, I have Chris Doe on the podcast. He's an Emmy award-winning designer, director, and CEO and founder of The Future. It's his online business with the mission of teaching a billion people how to make a living doing what they love. Chris has taught at Art Center and Otis for over 15 years. These are big art schools here in LA. And Chris's approach is actually shifting the education paradigm by bringing a new way of making a living doing what we love. And I've been a fan of Chris's at least since 2015. I've been following him. And I hope you enjoy as much as I've enjoyed uh, speaking with Chris today. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, As I have mentioned to you earlier, I've been a fan for a long time. I know you got started uh, in like 2012. And you've done so much good work, putting such good information out there for people like me. Thank you so much for the work that you do. And thank you for coming on. Ah, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. So how did your family make it out to the U.S.? Uh, April 30th, 1975, fall of Saigon. My parents fled like many Vietnamese people did. I'm sure you're aware of the history. And we initially landed in Kansas City, Missouri, but eventually my family made it to Northern California in San Jose. I only came down to L.A. to go to school at the Art Center College of Design. And since coming down here and working in the motion design industry, which is pretty much here, I've never left. So I've lived now in LA longer than I've lived anywhere else. Where along the the journey did you realize that you wanted to do design and be an art? I think like a lot of first generation Americans, I think the idea of doing something in the creative space or not going down the traditional path, it was seen with a lot of skepticism and worry and concern from parents because of course they don't want you to suffer. But I, I think I internalized that voice that design and art was for something that you play, not something that's real. And I didn't have any real clear role models in terms of who is, is successful at doing design as a career, where we had many examples of doctors, attorneys, engineers, people in that space in the respected fields that they're in, that there was a path for success. But for design, my only impressions of people who did design were the ones who worked at the fairgrounds, who did airbrush t-shirts, which I was just amazed by their hand skill, the people who painted or drew caricatures of you, and they made some money, or the artists who who were lined up along Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco who were trying to sell works of art that nobody seemed to buy, so they didn't look like they were in great financial condition. So I suppressed that part, that desire, but I drew, I looked at design, I was really into fashion, I wasn't sure of my orientation, like sexual orientation. Maybe I'm gay. I don't know. Why am I into all these things? Looking at interior design magazines, reading GQ, and just studying like interior design, like and looking around our house, like, why don't we live like these people in these magazines and just allowing my imagination to kind of get the better of me and just dream and live in that space? So it wasn't until I met an actual real life graphic designer, his name is Dean Walker, working out of his house, designing logos and packaging that I then knew this was it. This is for me. How did you meet that person? Very coincidentally, I was working at a silkscreen shop. I was basically a tracer for all you kids. You know, I was inking over 
my boss's drawings and just just production work. And then one day he's like, I need you to run over here and pick up some typesetting. Never even heard of that term before. I jumped in my Nissan 200SX hatchback, drove out to this guy's house, waited outside and was like, I wonder if he's ready. Knocked on the door and this guy comes out like an American dude, Hawaiian shirt and shorts. He's like, you're early, come on in. And that's how I met him. I was just there to pick up typesetting. And I was seeing someone use a Macintosh computer in a professional way that I'd never seen before. Now, prior to that, I saw people use things like Mac Paint. They seem crude and childish and not professional. But here he was designing and manipulating typography, something that was very hard to do by hand. And he was doing it really quickly. And he printed out on the first Apple laser printer. And I was like, this is genius. I can't believe you can do work that this high quality. And I was just, that was it. I knew then and there, this was going to be my future. You know, meeting people along the way, like Dean Walker, and these are all lucky coincidences that happen throughout our lives. Like so much luck is that it plays a role in the success of our lives. Don't you think? Yeah, but there's this thing that I, I'm probably going to butcher it. Like luck is the residue of hard work and preparation and timing, right? And so if I don't, um, here's what I think. We're all really lucky, but the most of us don't open the door to let luck in. We, we look at luck as a burden or going out of a comfort zone or going into the unknown and we close that door. We kind of, we, we, we put the deadbolt on so luck can't get inside. And I see this happening all the time. So I was at school just minding my own business, doing drawings. And my younger brother who was on the wrestling team, his coach Rudy said, hey, your brother draws, right? Would he like to work at a silk screening place? Now I sort of knew what silk screening was, but I didn't ever see it up close and firsthand. So when my brother told me about this, I showed up with my portfolio in hand, whatever you could call a portfolio. And I was hired on the spot and he says, you can start right now, start inking this. And I was like, what? And he was paying me 18 bucks an hour, which is like five times more than what I was being paid at my last minimum wage job. So it's just like, there's opportunities. There's a calling to adventure and you have to be willing to go. You have to cross the threshold. Are you familiar with Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey? Sure am. Yeah, so sure, yeah. we know this happens all the time. Now, it makes for better stories and in fiction where the hero, in this case me, would, would refuse to call and try to run away from it. But in my life, I found that when there's a call to adventure, just say yes, say why not, and then figure out what the consequences are later. And every time I've done so, I've been rewarded by that. So I go work for Brad months later. I'm picking things up for, for him, doing errands. I could have said, hey, man, that's not my job. You didn't pay me to be your gopher. Yeah. I'm supposed to be an artist, right? And I'm like, no, I'll do it. No problem. The, the, the first step to a thousand steps of, of the things that you've done in your life, you've done, you know, uh, uh, so much speak, uh, public speaking. You've done so many videos. You've created companies, shut down companies, and you continue to put out so much information. And along the way, are you saying that just do it and then let it all take care of itself? Because there's got to be some grueling challenges along the way. How do you how do you suffer through that? How do you get through the through the the, the challenging stuff? Yeah, there's two things that you're bringing up. One is sometimes opportunities or distractions. We have to be able to see that because it's like I don't like what I'm doing right now, and I see this shiny object over here, and I'm going to go chase after that, so I no longer progress in this area. And let's say, for example, two years ago, everybody was talking about NFTs, money millionaires were being made overnight. And so you could have dropped your primary business just to chase yeah. quick money. 
I don't believe those are good things, but when things are aligned with who you are, what you want to do, what gives you joy and purpose and meaning in your life, pursue those things and be open to ways in which you could do it better or faster. That's all good. So I, I know this and I've seen this since I was in high school. Several of my friends graduated from high school, going to college, thinking, I'm going to make my money doing this thing. And I knew it was like, do you really love that thing? No, they did it because they thought that was the fastest path towards getting a quick payday. And we'll continue to see the story for as long as humanity is around, where some charlatan will sell you an idea, a concept, get your money and get rich off of your desire to not do work and get a quick exit. They're going to be selling these products and these ideas to you to the end of time. And they're going to be suckers who line up for that. Everybody's looking for a shortcut. What I'm talking about is do the hard work to to be able to show up every single day when things are not in your favor, just to push through the difficult part. Seth Godin writes about this in his book, The Dip. He's like, we all go through this part where it stops being fun, it stops being rewarding. We slide into this valley, The Dip, and we want to quit because it's not fun anymore. It just feels like a lot of work and it's not going anywhere. It's not giving us anything back. So we quit. That's the part where you have to persevere. You have to be resilient and you have to push through. So every company that I've run, I've run a couple of companies. There's always these moments where you feel like you reached the peak and you're coasting for a while and you're really happy. But what you realize, it's not the peak of the mountain. It's just the tip of the base of the next mountain. And you got to just keep climbing again. And it's another climb. You get to $2 million in revenue. Well, guess what? Getting to $4 million is really tough. Getting to $6 million is really tough. And it just gets harder because there are bigger challenges. I think what you earn in this life is directly proportionate to the problems that you have to take on. The bigger the problem, the more money you make. And the greater the responsibility that you take on, the more money you'll make. So these are things that most people run away from. That book is is a phenomenal. I um I love it. It it helps illuminate the path of of how difficult things are, but when to sort of like let go and give up because the dip, the dip uh, Seth Godin's the dip talks about you know if you bump into if you get into the dip and you find yourself having a very difficult time compared to your peers or people in that space. And you have a hard time recovering and getting out. That thing was not meant for you to do, you know. If it keeps showing up, I mean, right? It, if it yes. keeps showing up as a difficult thing, then you got to get out. Sort of. He, there's two messages in the book, and it's kind of a very nuanced way to interpret the two messages. Mm. One is once you decide, do not quit, no matter what. The other is if you're going to quit, quit early. Right. That's the thing. That's the difference there. So what he's really saying is be in touch with who you are and what you want to accomplish in this life and try to predetermine in your mind, I'm really not that into this. So when things get tough, I will quit. In those cases, you want to quit before you even start. And the things that you commit yourself to push through the grind when it's not fun, when it feels like a lot of work and you can do it. I'll give you the example, right? My former business partner, the one who got me to make YouTube content, we had different opinions about how to run the channel. So I said, you know, out of mutual respect for you and what I want to do, we should do this independently of each other. And I would grind on it. And every day I would ask myself, gosh, I'm not getting that runaway success, but let's keep trying to tweak whatever we're doing, improve it a little bit, do a little bit less stupid things that don't work, do a little bit more of the things that are working. And eventually we get there. And eventually we get there. We have a couple like runaway hits and they've been very good for the channel's growth. And I continue to see like what else I can do. So there's something that you need to know about me. I'm a constant improver. My therapist told me this is your part of your psychological profile. That means that give you something and you're going to just sit there and, and in your mind, you're going to optimize and innovate, optimize and innovate. And I work well in that way. So perhaps I was a, a type of person who's 
kind of cosmically designed to take on challenges and to live in the dip until I can crawl my way out. So, you know, Blair N said this, all strategy is an auto, like autobiographical. And so, yeah, I believe it works. You get in the dip, put your head down and you're trying to figure out how to get out. And eventually if you don't give up, you will figure it out. Holy shit. That doesn't give much hope to the rest of us who are not programmed <laughs> to improve. Or maybe it'll inspire you to say, maybe I have it too. And I just haven't given enough time. I'm thinking about my own, uh, my own path and my own struggles. Uh, and you know, the interviews are the interviews and in what I do. It's uh, I'm close to 300 now. And, you know, it's a path that I love. And, you know, no matter how esoteric or how niche down the, the guests are, I will continue to do that. But I also created this other side thing called the Vietnamese life, which is like taking exploration in different, uh, different aspects of, of, of living. I have a whole camp of people who I, I hang out with and, you know, in the film space and, and, and media space. And they're divided. Some people are saying, do what you want. And this is a, a broader question for everybody. Do what you want. Do what makes you feel happy and, and right. And there's the other camp that says, no, you do what the people want. And, and here's where the breakdown is. For example, the new Barbie movie that's coming out uh, has been banned in Vietnam. And it's very interesting to me because there's this component of a U.S. product like Barbie, iconic. They're banning it because of the nine dash line that signifies these islands in Vietnam as China, quote unquote, owns these islands. So now Vietnam, the government has said, you know what, we're not letting Barbie in because of two seconds of whoever's mistake that was at Warner Brothers or Paramount or whatever that owns Barbie. They're saying that we are putting a ban on that film. I want to do an episode, a, a 10 minute thing about this. My my brother and, and a few of the guys like, dude stick to food lists the best pho the best you know compete against ramen and pho like go with where the people are so i wanted to ask you in this episode today how does a creator like me make these decisions where one i know the barbie conversation is not going to bring the eyeballs and the listenership that the food list will bring and not that i look down on the food list it's just not who i am but i'm at a crossroads constantly with these kinds of decisions Mm, okay. I thought it was gonna be harder to answer this question, but I have an easier answer for you as you were talking. Here's the bottom line. Don't get good at doing something you hate because you just get more of it. So if you're not a food list kind of guy, and if you're not like a foodie and you don't want to put on 400 pounds, you might want to stay away from that. You got to do things that you're passionate about because people, even though you might not know it, can sense your passion. I think one of the things that people really connect with me or don't connect with me is how passionate I am about the things that I say and talk about. I believe what I believe 100%. If I don't, I'm not talking about it. I have an opinion on lots of things that I'm not afraid to share it. So if this is who you are and you want to show up for this and you want to talk about media and being culturally insensitive or perhaps like, hey, Vietnam, get over it. You're depriving people of an excellent piece of entertainment. I can't say it because I wouldn't watch the movie, but yeah, those are kinds of things that you're going to navigate. But here's the thing. Don't do it because this might be the topic of the day or something that might pop. Because if you want to do this again, you're only going to alienate the people who already follow you, who care about you. And you're only going to bring in people like, oh, I thought he was going to talk about Barbie and movies and being culturally aware and sensitive to certain things. And you don't ever do that again. So you have not done yourself any favors. So 
I know a lot of people want to do like beauty and makeup and food lists and how to travel for cheap or uh, I'm an attorney. Here's how you work the system. If that's you, then by all means do it. And if it's not you, don't chase that because you'll get good at doing something you hate and then a life that'll make you miserable. That's great advice. But the second part of that question, the follow-up is like, well, what if you are so damn esoteric, you're so niche down on what you like that it's almost impossible to build a following? And what if it never mm. comes? What, what, what topic could that be, you think? Let's try and examine it as a specific versus a general concept. What do you think that might be? Um, what do you think the failure might be? What do I think the failure? No, like what niche topic might be too niche that it's too weird and esoteric? Oh, um, you know, you know, another topic that I wrote down and, and my brother and, and, and a few of my friends were like, stick with the food list, man, was the idea of wearing an Aoyai in the US. It's okay. a cultural sort of like conversation. What people, men don't wear Aoyai in Vietnam. They don't just wear it to a premiere. They don't wear it to a wedding. They don't like, they don't wear that but we do in the u.s we like to put on oh yeah at cer certain events and stuff mm -hmm. like that so that's a a very topical thing there's a new car company called vinfast uh that's coming from the from vietnam and it's a car company that is made in vietnam uh, by vietnamese money by by corporation Vietnam. you know they're like that's just so esoteric who cares about that stuff we don't care about it. We only care about like the more general things, you know, uh, food and 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 what kinds of uh, books or maybe films are, are are out there. But we don't care about the the very specific topics. Okay, let's make this then understandable for everybody. There are very niche topics that you can talk about, and the niche, the more niche it is, the smaller the audience you have potentially of hitting. So as soon as you go from mass communication, you go to niche marketing or niche communication, you're talking to a very small group. And of that, you hope to capture some percentage of them because not every Vietnamese man wants to talk about the the, the traditional dress, right? They, they don't want to talk about that. So there's a way that you can make this work. You have to be able to, I, and I believe this, you can talk about super niche topics that you have a deep passion and knowledge for, but you have to find the hook. And Brent, Brendan Kane talks about this in his book, Hook Point and 1 million followers. So you can you can be like into um, certain kinds of customs and, and, and cultural ways, and, and especially as, um, as, as, as refugees or first generation immigrants or something like that, how it's important for our culture to be connected and you can say like, what are your cultural connections? What are things that you feel that no one understands outside your culture, but you feel a sense of pride or obligation that you must continue in this because you don't let go of your roots. So now you've taken something that's hyper niche, but you made it super accessible and you bring people in that way. And then as they're in, so you're gonna say, so here's an example. As a Vietnamese American man, I see people wearing this and even in Vietnam, they don't wear this anymore. And I want to bring this up for discussion. And here are four ways of looking at it that might open your eyes. And then you go back out and say, here's what you might want to ask yourself as you're looking at your own customs and, 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 and things that you feel like are part of your core values. How might that inform that conversation? So you can definitely do that. This is like a masterclass in how to proceed with my life and I'm sure a lot of other uh, media people's life. I mean, how did you get this 
sharp with the amount of knowledge and experience that that you have because i see it in the slides and the video presentations that you do uh all over social media they're so succinct and they're, they're so full of clarity how do you think you whittled it all down to this sort of like simplicity i, I would love to take most of the credit and i can't i can take some of it but my mind is wired to think simplicity uh, sim simplistically where most people get stuck with making things overcomplicated, overthinking. They don't ask you one question, they ask you 45 questions yeah. baked into one. And this is how they live their life. And this is why people are always stuck at that, that, that intersection between decisions and they can't take a specific one. And I'm, I'm very cognizant of this as I see it in people. I start telling myself a story like, you know what? Make it simpler. And th there's a quote, I think it's from Einstein. It's like, if you can't explain something simply, maybe you just don't understand it well enough. <laughs> <laughs> and I go with that, right? So you go into academia, you know this. People tend to use $6 words. They make things super complicated. They're long run on sentences. And there's a lot of commas in how they speak. And you, it requires the pre-reading to be able to understand. So they're not great communicators. And if you want to be a great communicator, whether you like people or not, some of the best politicians understand how to phrase big ideas so that the everyday person can understand it. And that's the power of communication. Now, the other part to it is, just keep in mind, everybody, before I made my first YouTube video, I taught for 15 years at a private art mm -hmm. school. And then I ran a company for 20 plus years, working with staff, freelancers, interns, and also talking to clients who can sometimes be very difficult to talk to. So you, you couldn't get through that crucible of Los Angeles, super hyper competitive market without learning how to connect and communicate with people and build rapport. And so that's where that stems from. But as a designer too, you know this, as a designer, as a person who works in visual arts, you're trying to design where the eye goes. Yeah. So if you're doing a VFX shot, right? It's like you use color composition, you use uh, cues of action, lines of perspective, and, and, and lighting to be able to draw your, your eye because a scene is quite complicated and you wanna make sure you're directing the eye where it needs to go. So when I'm designing a logo, I'm not trying to literally illustrate the chef who's making the pizza. I'm trying to capture the idea of the company, the name brand of philosophy, not the actual process of making pizza. This is where a lot of logo designers are like, what? I thought you were supposed to illustrate that. No, you don't. Not at the level in which we're playing. So you're trying to take complex things and you're reducing it down to what is essential. And I think in the way I try to explain things, I, I try to do it that exact same way, whether it's in slide or spoken form. Now, when you were designing uh, yourself as the designer and when you were working with clients, how did you know when you were finished with the design and how did you know what to tell the clients, hey guys, you're done. We're done here. We're like, this design is perfect or it's ready to go out. Okay. Usually it's done because there's a deadline and mandates that it be done because I think if you just keep extending the deadline designers will keep working on it it's very rarely you could see something it's like i cannot fix one thing i cannot improve something it's almost always built on a deadline i want to design a t-shirt i want to design a poster there's no client but i know if i don't send it out to print i'm going to pay exorbitant rush fees and i might not get it shipped to me in time and then therefore when i try to sell those shirts or the t-shirt uh the shirts or the prints it won't happen because it, it didn't arrive on time. So it's really driven by deadlines, I think. When you say to yourself, this is the best that I can do with what I have in the time I was given, and you have to be okay with that.
there's a lot of experiments when they let artists work forever. They don't make more pieces. They're not better quality. This just takes them a really, really long time. And oftentimes, as the experiments have shown, the results are not are much better when they're given deadlines. This is uh, great to know because constraints is what helps us deliver. And without these constraints, these I mean, basically in, in a world where you're in a commercial world where you have to deliver and there's real constraints of, of money and deadline, that's that sets itself up for you know a produced finished produced product but in the space of like where i come from uh where we're just creating and we just we have no control we have to put these artificial constraints on or else we're never going to get work done it seems yeah yeah that um, there's a movie uh i forget that i'm looking it up right now is it john carter yes john carter okay i just want to point out something and tie it to what you just said when you're given unlimited amounts of money and time, resources, you would say that, well, in the world of you know, how everything's supposed to work, the most money, the most resources, the greatest amount of support should lead to a financial bonanza. And oftentimes it's not like you and I as an audience member walk into a theater and walk out and say, who is the idiot who greenlit this project? Everybody involved should be fired and never be allowed to do this again, right? Yeah. Whereas when we're given lots and lots of constraints, I remember many years ago, I saw this promo for MTV. I, I want to say it's like for Yo MTV Raps or something. It's probably not, but it's something that's related to hip hop. And because I know usually these budgets are tiny. And so what these creatives did was they took a cardboard box and they cut the silhouette of a break dancer, a B-boy doing a head spin. So it's a two-dimensional character and they color with markers and colored paper and they attached to a wire and they put the wire through a box and somebody on their box was spinning it like this. So he was doing a head spin. Super low quality, crude, won a bunch of awards because people are like, that's so inventive. They probably had $7 on that entire yeah. budget, put a video camera on this and they were able to become super inventive. So oftentimes, it, and, and you may know this too, from the culinary world, the really good food don't usually come from nobility. It doesn't come from more people. People will have to scrape things together and be super inventive. They're the ones who make the most interesting cuisine that then gets adopted by the middle class and eventually by nobility. It's almost always that necessity is the mother invention. So when you give people too many resources, too much time and too much money, it usually falls apart. Yeah, that's true. That seems to be the case. And in a lot of the big budget films, you're like, that makes no sense. You had all this money at your fingertips and you here's a shitty pro, you know, product. Yeah. Notice almost always the sequels to hit movies are always worse than the previous movie and each subsequent sequel gets worse because the first movie, they had lots of constraints. Mm -hmm. They had everybody looking at them saying, this is going to fail. You need to hurry up and finish this. You don't have the money. Let's go. And then the sequel comes out and then the trilogy happens. They're like, what happened? Because now they have no constraints. They renegotiated the contract. We get the uh, uh, final cut. We, we get to do whatever we want and we get to cast whoever we want because we know how to make hits. Well, it turns out you don't. So this next topic comes from this, it derives from this, that we're constraint topic. The idea of Vietnam and it being itself a brand compared to like a Korea, Korea for the last 35 years have has had a lot of money being poured into its infrastructure for media and, and art and arguably for in, its industry. 
Vietnam, on the other hand, uh, has put money into other things. It's uh, other sorts of development and infrastructure. Uh, there, a lot of buildings have gone up, a lot of transportation uh, changes, but the media side has has been limited. Not the, the government hasn't woken up to that yet, but yet the product is coming out shitty. You know, I think ninety percent of the box office in Vietnam domestic films bombed last year. So we are, as a media community, my friends and I and, and people that I know have really sort of put a lot of energy and effort into building and, and getting that improved in the last 20 years. But what can be done when things are severely limited, the constraints are severely limited coming out of Vietnam? And obviously, I have more questions when it comes to branding Vietnamese. Uh, this is the first question is with so much financial and budgetary constraints coming out of Vietnam, what can a country like Vietnam do to lift itself up? There's so many factors involved in this. I'm not sure I'm qualified to say, so I'm going to give you a fairly uninformed opinion about this and maybe we go off that. Okay. Let's ask ourselves this question. Those films that bombed 90% of the films that were made, do you think they would not have bombed if uh, they had more money? Great question. Resources? Yeah. They would still bomb. Yeah. Cause I know, students who make really good films and they don't need any money and oftentimes when they're given more money the product gets worse so it's not always that like we have to accept a couple different things it's a still relatively immature market run by people who don't probably know what they're doing who are giving money to people or green lighting pictures that probably should be green lit because it's probably some form of cronyism perhaps and it's going to take a couple of cycles for it to get better and let's not discount this factor that the American marketing machine in terms of IP is so strong. It's not just strong in Vietnam, it's strong all over the world. Like how many British films do you watch compared to American films? Where like these are developed countries that have had centuries of development, head start, money, resources, infrastructure, right? So we have to kind of say like, and, and there's a guy I was, I was talking to in the days of Clubhouse. He's like, if America uh, catches a cold, the UK sneezes. It's like we feel it right away. And so the influence, this what, what people refer to as soft power, is where the new battle will be won. And Korea is doing a bang up job of doing this. So they figured out, you know what? We have a couple of products and ideas. We can we can do well making TVs and cars. And we can break through that barrier and the stereotype that Korea can be taken seriously as a luxury uh, auto, auto, automobile manufacturer and engineers and designers, but also now K-pop, K-drama, K-soap opera, everything Korean is super hot and they have tremendous amounts of influence, winning Academy Awards and producing strange concepts that I think are so uniquely Korean. It's like, this is very cool. And I love this. And I love just to say, you know what, Asians, I think it's a moment right now. Asians are having a moment. Yeah. And I think we can ride with that. And we don't always have to be the tip of the spear. But what we have to do is do two things, we have or three things. We have to have a more mature infrastructure. The people, the powers that be, the executives who are assigned to like do this, to to make sure they know what they're doing, not because they knew somebody. Probably a big problem that there's not corruption there. Number two is we need to have creators who can compete on the global stage. So my suggestion there would be to make sure that those Vietnamese directors and writers probably need to compete in an international market first, make a name with all that knowledge and experience, come back and say, this is how it's done, everybody. Now we know how to make films that work and we'll make them culturally relevant 
and sensitive to what's going on here. The third is you have to have a market that has an appetite for Vietnamese written and directed and produced films. That may not be the case because America and, and part of the West do such a great job of branding that we want those things and we consider those superior and homemade goods inferior. So if the domestic market doesn't want it, you're climbing an uphill battle. Yeah, but the Korean the Korean content does very well in Vietnam, extremely well. It does every, well everywhere in the world, in yeah. Japan, yeah. in Taiwan. That's all they watched now. So what they've done is they figured out a unique variation of the Hollywood model, and they're able to make it in their own way, just like how uh, Japanese artists were influenced by Disney and then created manga and anime because of that. So they created a unique style while trying to emulate what Disney was doing. And now Disney is following suit by trying to emulate what Japanese artists, manga and anime are doing. So it's kind of interesting how they influence each other. And same with Hollywood and Korea, perhaps. Uh, k so. Yeah. But what do you think that is? What do you think that the Koreans did right? What do you think? And I don't mean process or technical. I... In terms of their messaging and their stories being so unique, how do you think that they got to that point? Because it's going to be strange, but I may introduce the Japanese concept the way it was explained to me. So forgive me, everybody, if I butchered it. I know I will. So I apologize in advance. Okay. Send all letters of complaint to Kenneth and not myself here. Okay. <laughs> you know, I teach and I always struggle with this in that why do students have such a hard time learning creative things? And I think part of it is baked into the DNA of a creative person, which is generally more a divergent thinker versus a convergent thinker. So the way I understand convergent thinking is you believe there's like one way to do it and there's only one right way. Divergent thinking is there's many ways and there's no right way. All ways can work as long as they eventually work. So when I'm trying to teach students, I think there's a very clear process. I want to make this as painless as possible for them. And what they do is they reject that that's your way, I'm gonna find my way. So they struggle mightily and they get to the last week of the last semester and like, oh yeah, you're right, now I need to do it your way, huh? They gotta go through this long circuitous process to ultimately discover that it may or may not work the way they want to do it, but that's how they do it. So here's the concept that's a Japanese concept, it's called shuhari. And it's, it's, it's a way to understand martial arts, I believe. Okay, so you as a newbie, need to learn from some master in karate, black belt, second degree black belt. So you go to his or her dojo. And the shoe part is protect. Learn everything that you can from the master as closely as possible to the master. So you, you try to become a carbon copy, okay? So ha is when you say, okay, I've learned from you, master. I want to learn other ways. And now I want to try to find where this technique doesn't work. So I'm trying to break it. So the first we protect it. Number two, we tried to break it. And, and re is where you leave and you create your own hybrid version. So you're going to combine lots of different thoughts and philosophies and you create a new martial art. This is very important to understand, especially in the West. They don't want to go through the shu, the ha. They just want to go straight to the re. I'm just going to do it my way. And I often refer to this monkey robot brain. It's like you just want to do something crazy and you're going to torture yourself and it's going to be like, it's going to be terrible. But this is how they want to learn. So something, and I'll, I'll use a, a, like a pop culture reference here. I think it's a great film. Not my favorite film, but The Karate Kid, right? Daniel LaRusso gets his butt kicked 
He moves to a new town. He looks different. All these wealthy, rich white boys are going to beat up this Latino guy or Italian, right? Daniel LaRusso. And he's getting his butt kicked. And so one day, Mr. Miyagi hears the sounds and he goes out and he saves Daniel. He kicks everybody's butt and he's like, you okay? And then he circles back with Mr. Miyagi. He's like, please teach me. He goes, no, please teach me. You don't know how hard it is for me. He goes, I'll teach you under one condition. Do you remember this at all? Yeah, I do. So the one condition is what? The one condition is you must do everything I say without question. So in the story, Mr. Miyagi is Japanese. So he's like, you must do this. Daniel's desperate. He agrees. Like, of course, I'm going to do everything you say. He goes, paint the fence. Wax on, wax off. And he's starting to get fed up already. He's only like learned two basic moves. He's like, I thought you were going to teach me karate. You've got me just doing all your garbage work. And then he says, Daniel-san, you know, paint the fence. And he does a block. Wax on, wax off. He's like, wow, I'm learning karate. Now, in the modern American or Western culture, they would not agree to these terms. They would say this is draconian. Uh, he is some kind of dictator, and we don't learn this way, and everybody's got a way to do it and respect my way. And then we all roll our eyes. So when we talk about like the culture, is Vietnam, the community, going to go and copy? I think the Koreans did this. The Japanese did this before them. They're like, why is this working? And they copied BMW. They copied Mercedes. The profile. It's, it's kind of wild. And if you see it, and because I read Motor Trend and Car and Driver, the Hyundai's was like, it kind of looks okay from the profile, kind of looks okay from the front, but the three-quarter doesn't look good at all. Is because that's all they were trying to do. They were trying to say, can we make a car as good as what BMW or Mercedes is making? Let's start by copying. And so they become the laughing stock. People are like, they have no original ideas. But what they didn't realize, the critics, was this is how you learn. Mm, shit. You don't go out and build a three-card automobile that's like backwards. You don't do that. You just copy first and you do it so well that you start to say, what if we change this? Does it make it better? Why is this designed this way? But only after you put in the necessary time, the 10,000 hours, maybe the 10 years, and they all do this. You'll notice that up until recently, up until the last 10, 15 years, Asian automobile manufacturers, Toyota, Lexus, uh, Nissan, all those, they tended to copy their European standard bearers. And you could see a lot of this influence, the character lines, the, the flared uh, fenders, whatever it was, it was very European. Now Toyota's done this thing where they're, they're, they're more bulbous and they're more aggressive and it feels like uniquely their own visual language. And Hyundai is doing this as well. Here I am for the last three years complaining that the Vietnamese entertainment and music is biting off the K-pop culture. And this is what Vietnam is doing. And great. So this is great news for the Vietnamese pop music scene is they have really radically changed the face of what we grew up with Paris by Night because Koreans took what the Americans did with the boy bands and the girl bands, the... And they just took it to another level and they redefined it in their own way. And I think Vietnam is going through that right now. And I've been complaining for three years about how I think that Vietnam is destined for doom and gloom because we are copying, we're becoming Koreans in essence, yeah. but we're doing it with the Vietnamese language. So there's, there's now there's hope at the end of the tunnel. There's some hope, but... There's ways for it to get wrong too, because you have to copy wholeheartedly, unabashedly to try to emulate what, they, what they're doing and what they've learned. 
excuse me, because otherwise what you do is you just do a bad copy and that's terrible. Like you're just doing a cheap knockoff, right? So the shoe part is to do everything they, they are doing as faithfully as possible without even trying to throw in a variation. Try to do that first. If they have five boy band members, you should have five. Don't do four. Don't do 17. Just do five. If they're of a certain height, just do that height. If there's usually one lead guy or they like share the parts, do that. Do it exactly. And this is usually where we run into lots of problems. So let's take in controversial maybe Chinese knockoff goods. Their purpose is not to protect. They're not following shoe. They're just saying those companies have spent time in R&D and we're going to do everything we can to skip and uh, skip to the front and cut corners. And they do a really crappy job. They get parts of it right. Like it kind of looks right but then the plastic's not right. Uh, the engineering, the technical parts is not right. So they make an inferior product that emulates or that something that you would want to buy and it falls apart immediately. They're actually not trying to spend the time to look at the engineering, to the design inside and out. They're not trying to do faithful copies and they have no intention of growing beyond that. They're just trying to make a quick buck. There's a big difference there and we're not sure which is which until we start to see the long-term plan. And sometimes we don't see it, but we can feel it falling apart. You can. And yeah. you'll know it falls apart right away because you'll buy it and you're like, never again, never again. Notice something that Honey did, which is kind of like an industry first, if I can remember this correctly. Car companies used to do four-year war warranties, bumper to bumper, and then they went to five. Months. I think Honey does 10 years. Like They're like, you know what? Yeah. We play that game. We go all in and we raise you double. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about copying. They're not trying to cut corners by saving money in engineering, saying you have the poor man's bmw they're saying you actually have a better car yeah it, it, it was uh i think 10 10 years and a hundred thousand miles or something like that it was yes some crazy shit. yeah ridiculous saying we guarantee you are driving a better car than what's whatever's out there and they did it they reached the finish line basically amazing so at 42 you decide to, to step into this youtube space and you just you 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 gamble on it, but you always talk about you being an introvert. Now, do you think being an introvert has helped you with the with the video uh, journey, or do you think it doesn't even make a difference? I think we're all designed in a certain way, whether you believe in God or the cosmic, the universe, Mother Nature, whatever it is that you believe. There's a certain unique set of characteristics and traits that make you you none of it's an advantage none of it is an advantage none of it is a disadvantage it's how you use these things right um, i was talking to a friend of mine a former student who's helping me develop some software and he practices brazilian jiu-jitsu he goes oh do you know this guy he has no arms and he has no legs or something right and, he, and I'm like, how does one even grapple with no arms and no legs? He goes, you'd be surprised. He's freakishly strong because he has half the weight. So he's fighting in a weight class where his body's built differently, right? And he's super freakishly long and when you are strong and when you go to, to grapple with him, you can't grab anywhere. You don't know how to get this guy. You just can't get him. So I went, he's like, he's describing a story. He's like, this shouldn't be that hard. He goes in and he's getting, he's tapping out instantly. He's like, what is happening? This person has figured out how to use your body type and for a period of time until you start to wrestle with somebody like that and you figure out a strategy, he'll beat you. 
So we've seen people like that are double or triple jointed go on America's Got Talent and do these freakish mm -hmm. shows where they're like bent backwards, their heads like 360. I'm like, what is going on? And people are just freaking out. They've learned how to use a perceived disadvantage and turn it into an asset, a liability into an asset. So if you're an introvert, it's not going to make you better or worse than anybody else. Being an extrovert doesn't make you either. You have to learn how to use what you have. For me, introversion means I, I don't get energy by being around people. Yeah. I lose energy. So I'm more introspective. I like to spend time with myself. It just turns out a lot of introverted people are good with computers because we work in, in, in like solitary, right? Like we, we work by ourselves and we have a lot of time to think about what we think about. So if you like writing, producing, watching videos by yourself, then you might have an advantage if you know how to get outside of your comfort zone and start to produce content. And so I know extroverts who are just the same. They're, they're deep thinkers, they read and they like to share content and they write, but they don't like this act of communicating in a solitary space. And so then their energy is off. So yeah, it's just I, about how we use what we're given. I think that's more of it than anything else. Yeah, that's very important. Uh, and you're right. It, it's it's tools that we are blessed with. And there's different pros and cons yeah. with whatever we're given. How did you know um, that this is a space where you would be able to continue and to flourish after, I don't know, the first three years, five years? How did you know that this is something that you can improve the odds of the videos and the content getting better? And yeah, I asked I this. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I asked this because there are plenty of people that right out the gate, you know, a year in, they're doing super well as, a, as creatives. Uh, you know, they write a script and it's picked up by a network and they sell it. But there's people who are really good at what they do. And eight years later, they're still on the grind. So how did you know that this is a space that you can play ball in? The truthful answer is I didn't, I don't, and I still don't know. What you have to do is you have to be open enough to say, I'm going to try something that's new. That's going to scare the bejesus out of me. I'm going to just try and I don't know where it's going to go but I'm not ready to give up when it doesn't work out. I just want to grind through it as the content improver. That's how I keep going. So I produce videos that no one watches. I'm like, what can I do differently? Like, let me just keep trying. And that fails and the next thing fails and you just keep failing. And I know that every failure is a lesson, an opportunity in disguise. It's the blueprint on how you can be successful. And so I'm making sure I read the blueprint because I don't want to waste a perfectly good failure. This is what a lot of people do. So they, they fail and they, they feel the emotional sting like I'm a failure. People are going to think I'm a loser. And they don't examine the parts and pieces and put it back together because those are all clues on how to succeed. So if you film something and the audio is horrible, you're like, oh, what a failure. Or perhaps you need to just work on the audio part. Get that part right. Uh, yeah, the episode was a failure because I was so disorganized. Well, you don't just quit there. You're like, well, how can I become more organized? How do I give these calls uh, these sessions more structured. Well, sit down and write a freaking outline, prepare some slides, gather your thoughts. Perhaps you can prototype what you're going to say before you say it with your team members, which is, these are all things I've done. And so slowly but surely, the people, the algorithm reward you for trying to make improvements. Okay, so the people who have been grinding away at this for eight years and have no results, I would say perhaps you're just doing more of the same instead of trying to find ways to improve it. And maybe, just maybe, what you're doing is great, but you need a mentor to point out the parts that aren't working for you. I remember early on, 
I became friends with somebody named Roberto Blake and he had a call with us and he said, hey, here's what I would do. I looked at your analytics, looked at your videos, here are four or five best practices. And sure enough, we implemented those things and they improved our channel. And at a certain point, we not only caught up to Roberto, we surpassed him in terms of his subscribers and our visibility and our influence. And I still have him to thank for those early days saying, hey, we're peers in this space. Let me help you out, charge us any money. Just wanted help. He's a real genuine guy. And I I have a friendship with him now because of that. And I think that's really cool. So you have to look at yourself like, are you really trying to make it better or just doing more of the same? Because if nothing changes, nothing changes. And then to be smart enough to know, like, I've gone as far as I can. I need help. I need professional people who've been here before who are willing to help me either for free or for, for money. It doesn't really matter. But I'm willing to buy some experience so that I can get to the result faster. And you just do that. And I would say sometimes to people who shoot out of the gate and have early success, they're just as doomed as the people who grind at it who don't have any success at all. Because you didn't go through the process of figuring out what didn't work. You found one way that worked and then you're going to be paralyzed for the rest of your life. How do I get back here again? Yeah, uh, the podcast Freakonomics does a a good one on this one. Uh, They dive deep into this idea of why the sophomore, uh, uh, what is it, the sophomore flop or people who make the second uh, album or the second film fails drastically. Uh, It's such an interesting sort of uh, way of, of looking at the work that we all do. But that's that's really awesome, Chris. Um, it, it gives me, and I, I hope a lot of the audience people that are listening uh, a glimpse into sort of what we should be doing um, when we're setting out to create and and make things in, in the world. At the future, which is your company, you give instructions for creatives on how to make money. Can you tell me about this uh, business model that you have and talk a little bit about it? Because uh, I I know enough about it, but I would love for everybody to hear uh, what you do at the future. Sure. Thanks for asking that question. In the beginning, we were talking and I told you that I didn't consider design in the creative space a viable career. Like who knew? And then I do that and I'm doing pretty good in my life. And then nobody told me you can actually make a viable career running an education company I'm like, can we do this? I don't know. Maybe it'll work. I don't know. And you do it and you realize, oh my gosh, it's not so much the application or what it is that you do. It's who you do it for and the platform in which you do it on. And I talk about this quite a bit, like recently. When I taught at Art Center, I made like $56 an hour. From the beginning to the end, I think I got a $4 raise. In 15 years, that's what they gave me for adjusted for inflation, I think. So... In reality, I was getting paid less than I was paying freelancers myself. And then I go and say, okay, I'm I'm done with this. I obviously am not teaching for the money. I'm teaching it for love, to give back, sense the community, pay it forward, all those kinds of things. Why don't I just do this on YouTube? I'm the same person, teaching relatively same things in arguably a less dynamic environment and something weird happens. My effective hourly rate goes through the roof. So just keep in mind, I probably have, was never paid more than $60. I can't remember. Somewhere in the neighborhood of $60 an hour to teach class. They don't pay you to prepare. They don't pay you for the commute. They don't pay you to do any extra work outside of the hours in which you're on campus teaching. So sometimes it's three hours, sometimes it's five hours, depending on the class. Now I take the same skill set. I'm going to turn the camera on. I'm going to publish it for free. 
and I'm going to teach the same concepts. And now, if you want to hire me or book me for a coaching session one-on-one, it's going to cost you $5,000 an hour. If you want to book me to do a keynote talk, it's going to cost you $30,000 an hour plus travel, plus hotel, plus transportation to and from. So is it radically different? No. Is the application different? No. I'm teaching the same things. But I just changed the platform. I took it to YouTube. I made money there. I took it to the stage. I make different kinds of money there. So a lot of times when we look at are we failing, are we really failing or we just haven't found the right platform or the audience for what it is that we do? So there's many ways to succeed. There's a couple of ways to fail, but failing to make changes as you go is probably the surest way to fail. Mm. Another guarantee of failure is to do nothing. You will fail for sure. Wow. So how do you teach creators at the future? How do you, you know, what's the business model? Okay, the business model. There's a couple of parts. I'll, I'll give you the high level overview. And if there's anything you want to go deeper on, I'm happy to. We, we make a lot of our money selling courses. So we have about a dozen courses with some things I've authored myself with other teachers, educators, and they range from $49 to $10,000, depending on the product of the course you enroll in. The higher touch ones obviously cost more. The ones that are more downloadable are less expensive. We make money through our two coaching communities, the Accelerator Group and the Future Pro. People pay between $99 to $250 a month to be amongst their peers, to get a curriculum that's designed for them, a 21st century virtual school, if you will. We also make money through sponsorships. We run workshops. Uh, we sell merch and products. And no one of those things is going to make anybody rich, but all of them combined together. Last year, we did $5.4 million in revenue. That's how we do it. I forgot to mention AdSense. We do make some money on AdSense as well. That's a whole lot more than $56 an hour. A little bit. <laughs> It's incredible, man. You know, like I said, I've been following your work for many years. Uh, and just to see a Vietnamese person, a Vietnamese man, so visible out there uh, on, on the social media space, you know, it, it changes and it rattles and inspires so many people who are my generation and younger to to do this. I, I Do you know how much, you know, transformative, um, inspirational sort of lives that you've touched uh, as a result of your work? Do you think about this at all? I try not to think about it because my wife will tell me I got to keep the ego in check here. So I feel it. I feel it when people reach out, they, they send me DMs and they say, you know, you helped me do this or uh, you, you prevented me from quitting this career. You gave me uh, renewed uh, inspiration or vigor to do my work or you, you helped me to go from doing a $1,000 project to a $10,000 project. So those are real tangible ROI on what it is that I do. And every once in a while, a person of color, an, an Asian American, a Vietnamese American or Vietnamese person will say, you know, you're my hero. You, you give me permission to do this crazy thing that I'm doing. And I love hearing that. And then sometimes I get young people reaching out to me saying, my parents won't let me do this. They don't think that there's a viable career in the creative space. And I've made this offer a couple of times. No one's ever taken me up on it. I said, have your parents call me. Well, wow. literally, I'll talk to them. And if I can't convince them, then tough, tough luck. You tough know? Tough, They're yeah. just not really open to anything. But I'll tell them, you know, so here, here's a story for you, because my uncle was just here and, and his daughters, my cousins, they're hanging out. In, in a weird way, I'm like the black sheep of the family. 
everybody be, did something that's respectable. They're pharmacists. Some of them are nurses and doctors and lawyers, accountants and engineers. They're all doing what they're supposed to be doing in Silicon Valley. And I was the person who's like, I'm going to pursue art uh, to the chagrin of my dad is like, this is going to be horrific. Right. And I go do my thing. My dad doesn't understand what I do for some time, but it's hard to argue with the, with the success that comes with what I'm doing. And now all of a sudden I'm making more money than any of my cousins pursuing a legitimate field, not in just a little bit. And I'm not saying this to brag, but in orders of magnitude right. more. So I'm doing more in less time and more consistently. And so now everybody's like, should we get business advice, career advice from Chris or one of the cousins? Who's the person who's creating the success for themselves? At the end of the day, here's what I want people to walk away with. Don't do something because you think it's going to make you rich or famous or popular. Do it because there's this burning, unquenchable, insatiable appetite or desire to do something that you're deeply passionate about, how you want to change the world or how you want to make an impact. It could be in making sandwiches or being a nurse. It doesn't really matter. When you find that, what you do is you stoke the fire. You don't starve it. You feed it oxygen. You give it fuel and you let it take it wherever it goes. And you may not be rich, but you'll live as a wealthy person. And that's more important than being rich. You're aligned with who you're supposed to be. And I think when you do that, a marker of financial success, I think, is a reflection of how aligned your life is. So right now, people ask me, what's next? I'm like, there's nothing next. This is it until I can't do this anymore. This is it until people say I'm bored of you. This is my life. I want to teach. I want to teach as many people as possible. I want to learn. I want to share. I want to have conversations. I want to move the needle for people. And I want to change the education system. So, so there's a lot of work ahead for us. Maybe more than one lifetime, but yeah. I'm committed to doing it. But, and you've, in essence, been doing the same thing just on different platforms since you were making $56 an hour. I mean, you are changing lives through education yes. of design and marketing. So you, in essence, have been chasing your bliss for the last 20-something, 30 years of your professional life. Yeah, 23 years now. I started teaching in uh, early 2000s. And so you're right. I did it traditionally for yep. a group of 15 to 20 students, sometimes eight students at a time. I did that for a really long time. I would do independent studies. I would take on interns. So I'm constantly teaching. And I tell people, one of the primary roles as an entrepreneur is that of an educator when you understand that your business and your life will change. But I think the other layer or layers of what you do is when you start introducing the Seth Godin's you know, the books, the the Malcolm Gladwell's, the stories. When I ask you questions, you you respond back with a story and then you back it up with an author. That shows that there is this, not only is this basic understanding, but I will give you supporting materials to even further uh, direct you to go read or, or learn up on this idea. And then I think that's sort of why uh, I, I feel like the success of where what you've done is so successful because of these multi-layered um, avenues that you provide alongside with the basics and the foundations that you talk about. I want to share something that is semi-embarrassing to admit to you. I'm 51 years old. That's not the embarrassing part. <laughs> I've read more books in the last nine years of my life than the first 42 years of my life. Wow. So I share that for a couple different reasons. So if you're sitting back like, I don't read books, I don't watch videos, it's okay. I'm not here to sweat you. I don't really care. 
And you might think I'm too old, it's too late and all that kind of stuff. Just keep in mind, I didn't make my first YouTube video. It was not a good one. The first YouTube video until I was 42 and it was 2014. That's when I made my first video in January 2014 because I have a date, I can see it. That's when we released our first YouTube video and then began this quest. So a couple of years into making content, I remember seeing this clip of a young Gary Vaynerchuk lecturing at USC and he was bombastic and he was, he was lucid, he was dropping things and he was challenging, he was dropping F-bombs and pulling out quotes and data and statistics. And I remember very distinctly, Kenneth, that I was looking at that video and I was thinking to myself, how did he do that? Yeah. I could never be like that. Well, I am happy to say I'm not like that today, <laughs> but people do perceive me like that. We're like, how are you pulling all these things? Yeah. So I was where you're at right now, whoever's listening to this or watching this and thinking to myself, it is not possible. I cannot be that articulate. I cannot be that clear. I cannot recite the kinds of things I've learned. You can if you work at it. That's so encouraging. I obviously have a ton more questions, but I think I'm going to save it. And now after having this sort of baseline conversation with you, bring you back on the podcast, if it's okay, to talk very specifically about future things like the branding of Vietnam and, and the direction of as a Vietnamese person, how important that is to you. There's so many other things that I want to touch up on, but I think now that we have this baseline, we can save it for uh, very specific uh, topics, if, if that's okay with you. Yeah. I have a question for you, Kenneth. Yes, what Chris. is your connection to Vietnam? What is my connection to Vietnam? Yeah. Why are you so interested in the branding and the building and the industry and the media and all that kind of stuff? The, the simple answer is shame. I grew up very ashamed of being Vietnamese. I uh, remember my mom saying when we used to go to airports to pick up my family coming in from LAX and um, throughout those years and then subsequent years when I was a little older, she would always say, look at those guys. Those guys are Americans. You know, they're tall white guys or whatever, right? Those guys are Americans. How do I know? Because of the way they walk, the way they carry themselves. Inadvertently, I think that's sort of like the tip of the iceberg of the shame that we all Vietnamese Americans or Vietnamese all around the world kind of experience after the war. And I think I was hit the hardest because I was like one of the firstborn Vietnamese. I was born in November 1975. Um born in the US and having this sort of weird, well, I'm an American. I'm so proud to be an American. But then at the same time, I'm not Vietnamese because I was not born in Vietnam. So I lived in these two very different worlds. And then I joined the Marine Corps. Uh, and before I joined the Marine Corps, I was like living in the hood with, uh, you know, all black and Mexican kids being put down, being, and then once I got to school, at one point I went to an all white school and it was just jarring wherever I went because there was another Vietnamese people and I was always put down for being a Vietnamese person. But I'm six feet tall and I'm like, I I'm, I'm built like a, a Marine and I, I've kept my uh, exercise going uh, after all those years in Marines, but I still feel this shame and I work out so hard because I, I want to, I work my brain out and I work my, my, my cultural sensitivity about who I am out and my physique out so I don't feel like nothing. And that's what drives me to explore more and more and more deep about the Vietnamese culture. 
Yeah, so I, I, I work out and I, and I try to prove to the world, whether it's physical or emotional or intellectual, that being Vietnamese, you know, is, is something to be very proud of. So I think I live in the light and the dark when it comes to this idea of proliferating uh, the Vietnamese overseas or just being a Vietnamese person in general, that I, I want the world to see us in, in, in a much more positive light than I have seen myself. Yeah, I share that with you. Um, it was not until I graduated college that I started to understand that people can asian people can be proud of their own ethnicity <laughs> it's taken me a long time you're like what so i'm just a few years older than you yeah. i did not have the benefit of being born here but i think our stories are almost the same never feeling like we fit in having great shame of our own ethnicity not feeling like we belong in in one space or the other and if i had to combat that in very physical ways at points some oftentimes verbal and then mental and so it's this narrative that you develop over time. And, and the West and, and, you, and mostly white Europeans are very good at saying, this is the mold of perfection. You, we, people that are the, the, the smartest, the brightest, and everything that we have is the one, the model to, to chase after, right? They've done this all over the world as conquerors, as imperialists or whatever. And so they're like, we're superior, you're inferior, we're superior. And then we start to internalize this dialogue so that Asian people start repeating those same words to ourselves, to our children, to our siblings. We are inferior in every way, right? It, it's very damaging. So I'm in college and for graduation, there are a lot of international students. I'm probably one of the poorest people there, relatively speaking, because there are a lot of rich people that go to art school. Uh, and then I see Koreans and Japanese uh, and people from China, from Taiwan, wearing their native dress. And they walk around like peacocks. I'm like, what? Because it's not what I would wear. And at first, my reaction was like, oh, this looks really bad. Don't, don't you guys, shouldn't you guys be wearing suits and dresses and wear your Western attire? But the difference between them and us is they grew up where they were the dominant people. Their right. culture reigned supreme and they didn't know anything else. So, of course, they're proud to be Japanese or Taiwanese or Chinese or Korean. They showed up in their dress. And it was one of the first times I actually saw people who looked at their culture, their identity, their language, their customs, and how they how they dress as a thing of pride. Not just a little bit of pride, but a lot of pride. A lot of pride. And it made me really check in with myself. Like, I've been living with a lot of self-hate, and I was ashamed now for thinking those thoughts that we're inferior. And I did think that for a long time. You know, one of my wishes as a child was like, I wish I were white. I wish I would just belong here because I'm tired of being bullied. I'm tired of being harassed. I'm tired of teachers and substitute teachers pushing my name and not even trying to make an effort. And so I'm there with you. I think we have similar ideas, maybe different execution of those ideas, where I think there's a stereotypical idea about Asian men being effeminate, being good at math, uh, just not being manly enough, being unfit and weak and all those kinds of things or conforming, like we're great at assimilation, there's no originality, all those kinds of things that they put as a blanket label over Asian culture. So what I try to do in my own way is to say, I wanna be an example in my career choice, in my creativity, in my ability to achieve excellence in the world, in the way that I dress, in the way that I carry myself, that you can be all these things. You could be creative and you could be fit. 
You can be an entrepreneur and you can be kind. You could be successful and suck at math. All these things are possible. And I just want to shake up the stereotype of what the mold looks like so that people, Asian, white, black, it doesn't really matter, person of color, gay, straight, non-binary, whatever can say, you know what? If that monkey, meaning me, can do it, I can do it. And now, oddly enough, I live in my life now where I tried to stand out, whereas most of my life I tried to blend in because I don't want trouble. Yeah. Now it's like, you want to start a conversation with me? I invite you to because I'm going to wear things. I'm going to say things. I'm going to do things that provoke interaction because I want to have that dialogue with you. You know, that resonates with me and what you said earlier about the car companies. You know, you do it for 10 years and you got to do it correct. You have to execute correctly. That resonates with me because I feel like for 20 years, I tried to emulate the white man in every aspect of, of, of the way I talk, my speech patterns, my, the way I worked out, the way I, you know, really tried to, uh, attack, uh, this problem and without learning what goes on from the white side, it is probably very difficult to kind of talk about what I do on the Vietnamese side today. And so today I embrace all of it, all of the imperfections, the shame, the beauty of the Vietnamese, the beauty of even American culture. All of it is sort of the way that, and I, I think that I'm only just a few percentage points into what I've even really understood because there's so much that I've gotten wrong in the last three years and on my journey as well. And so um, talking to somebody like you and seeing how this is all shaping up is uh, again i think it's just the beginning of 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 the journey for the vietnamese uh, community throughout um, the world i want to share share something with you in that i've been meaning to come back to vietnam i've never been back since leaving i tried and then COVID happened and my wife and i had to cancel all our plans we had this multi-week adventure in, in vietnam with my parents all my siblings have gone back my parents have gone back multiple times as as of my brothers and my cousins, I'm the, the last one to return home, not because I don't want to, but here's the weird thing. Everywhere in the world I go, people pay me to go and speak and do workshops and things like that. Some Vietnamese brothers reached out to me and they're like, we're not gonna pay you, but we can get you a flight. Like that's the least of my concerns right now. And I just felt like they're trying to exploit my nationalistic pride and I was just not having it. And wow. maybe I need to rethink that. I, I want to know what your thoughts are. It's like, you know, you're going to speak here for free because you're an Asian brother or Vietnamese brother. I'm like, boy, it's oh, no, no love, man. but like your own love. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's another problem too. It's like best practices. You know, I think sometimes our Vietnamese community don't, don't, we don't understand that, you know, best practices are best practices anywhere you go, whether it's in the American community or Vietnamese American community or Vietnamese German. It's best practices means just doing the best thing uh, when you invite a keynote or when you invite somebody over. So I, I really um, will probably have to talk off air and find out who these people were, who the brothers were that invited you over. Um, because I can imagine, um, you know, there's an ambassador uh, from Vietnam to the EU. She's uh, she's retired. And she's putting together a uh, a summit or a weekend or a week of, of rebranding Vietnam. Chris, you'd be one of the perfect guys. If it came from that corner of the of Vietnam, 
uh, and they, did, they had a limited budget, then, you know, that's one conversation, right? right. But if it's coming from like, uh, like the real estate uh, uh, industry, Vietnamese real estate industry here in America, and they want you to go back to Vietnam to kind of talk to them about brand, I, that's a whole different animal, right? And which community it comes from is is relevant to the conversation. Yeah, and this was not from an official, like, let's do good in the world community. Yeah. Yeah, it's just another that's, entrepreneur that's... saying, hey, come here. I can probably take care of your flight. I'm like, oh, no, no, thanks. Not right yeah. now. That's brutal. Yeah. Well, well Chris, well, uh, whenever you go to Vietnam, um, after you come back, I would definitely like to sit back down and, and get uh, an episode to hear your thoughts of, about your uh, Viet Vietnamese experience. But before you go, I probably want to end on this. Is My question is, what do you think will be your life experience or your living experience in Vietnam once you get there? How do you think it will, what, what kind of ways do you think it's, I don't want to say, well, how do you think it's going to transform you? Because who knows? But I, are you anticipating that sort of transformation? What are you kind of wanting uh, from the trip of returning to Vietnam? I try not to go into experiences with too many expectations because the more expectations you have, the more likely you are to be disappointed. Now, when I go to Vietnam, there'll be a couple of different reasons. Number one, my parents are getting older. They're, they're quite old these days and I wanna be able to have that trip with them. To be able to walk the streets they walked on, to have them tell their stories and just feel that energy, that love and that nostalgia with them. Because they've been back and they have parts they love and they have parts that they hate. But to be able to just to do that with them, like every time I get a chance to travel with my mom and dad, I look forward to it. The other part too, is my wife is planning a trip. She's talking about going to visit like one of the deepest caves in the world. And she's a deeply spiritual person. She is about energy. And there's some magical places on earth that have a certain frequency and energy. So we're going to do that. And I'm going to, I think on this trip, leave all my professional obligations aside so I can be 100% focused on doing the things that we're supposed to be doing as a family. So I think we're heading back during the winter holiday so that my boys can come with us without disrupting their school. I want to experience the cuisine, the culture, the sights and the smells, the good and the bad, the hot weather, the humidity or the cool air, whatever it is, just to say like, yeah, you know, this is like the birthplace for me. And I just want to get that connection, like foot on the ground, feeling the earth and breathing the air and putting all the other expectations aside. Um, on a different kind of trip, I'd love to do business oriented things where I can help train and teach people and show people you can be a successful Vietnamese person in the world and be looked up to by a lot of non Vietnamese people. It is possible because like I said, if I can do it, you can do it. And I want to share those experiences and be as open as I can with whoever wants to share stuff with me. But, you know, I also watch people who live in Vietnam who are expats from America, I guess. They're Americans living in Vietnam and they're eating the food and they're talking about it's $2 for this, 50 cents for that. I'm like, I, I, I want to do that. I want to eat the street food. I want to go into the side alleys and walk into an old lady's home and say, you know, I'd like to eat bank sale. I want to do something. I, I want to eat bank one. Let's go. Let's try this and to support the smaller businesses throughout the beaten path. Unfortunately, I fear I have such a weak stomach. The slightest thing that's wrong, it'll run right through my body like a river runs through the valley, you know? <laughs> so who knows what will happen there? Everybody's so scared of eating uncooked food there that haven't lived there that their stomach can't handle it. And I know my stomach can't handle it, but I'm still willing to roll the dice. Well, I, I think um, years past and 10 years past, 20 years past, 
those were huge concerns about going back for the first time and eating and then having like these dysentery or, or problems yeah. with their stomach. But I will say that uh, if you go back the first two days, if there's anything three days that you eat and it'll jam you up or mess you up, make it flow, uh, then for the rest of the trip, it'll be better. And then subsequent trips back to Vietnam, you won't have issues anymore because the gut biome thing, mm. it does its thing. The, the bacteria that it has, these foreign bacteria are now living in, in your stomach. So you won't experience the same uh, uh, violent episodes. Uh, and I say that through my own experience and just watching many, many uh, Vietnamese Americans go back uh, throughout the years. And that's sort of their their consensus. It's like you, you go down the first trip and you go down for a day or two. Um, I went down for three nights the first time I went back, and I've been fine ever since. Um, so, <laughs> now are you the type of person to hold on to your stomach bug, or are you the one that lets it flow? No, you got to let it flow. You you can't control it. I, one no, night, I know, but naturally, like when you eat a bad burrito, are you sick for days? No, I'm sick for a day. Okay, I'm yeah, not so sick for like an hour. It goes right through my body like hot liquid. Oh, and then you're fine after that? I'll be fine. Yeah, I don't get oh. sick. Like I have a cousin who holds onto his food. He's like throwing up and vomit, you know, diarrhea for days. I'm oh, like, wow. no, it just goes right through me. Yeah, yeah. Then you're gonna be fine. Chris, you're gonna be fine. Just be near a bathroom. Right yeah, and, and you know what? I forget you were born there. So I'm sure those gut biomes or whatever that you experienced 50 years ago is still there. And I don't think it's that foreign, you know. Mm. And you know, the conditions in Vietnam are so much cleaner today. There's malls there and restaurants there that are newer than they are in the u.s theaters mm -hmm. there the modernization of vietnam is mind-blowing yeah so I, I i can't wait to to hear uh you know maybe we can meet up for for lunch or something in vietnam that's i'll be back in uh december as well oh, okay three weeks i hope to see you i'll look for yeah. the tall six foot asian guy <laughs> chris thank you so much I, I really appreciate your time today thanks kenneth Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.